0: and welcome to Unorthodoxy. My name is Duncan Rayburn, and I'm glad that you're joining me out here in cyberspace. Uh, If you're interested, you can support this podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. This is, believe it or not, the last episode in my series on the Book of Job, and even though we're at the end of the series, I still feel like I've fallen terribly short of actually explaining anything. I didn't Exactly, set out to do um, a thorough exegesis of the book of Job, and I guess it's for that very reason that I feel that there's a lot that I've left out. I certainly haven't solved the book's many conundrums, and there's even a chance that I've posed more questions than I have given answers. But hopefully, the picture I have given you has offered something of uh, a few moments of enlightenment or curiosity or just plain interest. I want to finish off this series by talking about wonder, which is powerfully linked in the book of Job with the awesome experience of divinity by Job himself towards the end of the book. Of course, I'm not going to even bother trying to explain the experience of God. What I will reiterate, though, is that um, well, this is something that I've already intimated in this series, um, which is this idea that God is less a proposition or object of belief than he is an experience or subject of belief. And to make matters more confusing and difficult to articulate, the experience of God is often experienced as an abyss of sorts or a loss of God, weirdly enough, an absence of God. So what this means, I guess, is that whatever God is, he is qualitatively different from us and all other beings. And as a result, even the word God is almost certainly a category error. We cannot, in some sense, actually name God. Nevertheless, the book of Job points to something that many throughout history have experienced, which is an encounter with God, which just happens to be an encounter with sheer astonishment and a kind of positive perplexity. If I had to summarize the broad purpose of the book of Job, which is, I suppose, a difficult and maybe unfair thing to do, I would say that ultimately it is a book that calls us to wonder. Yes, suffering is at the center of the narrative, as well as a number of other ideas, but it seems to me that wonder forms the foundation and subtext of everything in the story. This is hugely significant because wonder is almost certainly one of the most neglected aspects of the human experience today. My friend Trevor a while back suggested to me that we might face each day, even the most difficult of days, with the question... Where can I find wonder today? And at the end of the day, we could ask ourselves, in what ways was I filled with wonder today? Um, Where did I find wonder? And this means that wonder is something that we kind of have to look for. Um, Trev's suggestions uh, struck me and stuck with me profoundly. My guess is that most of us don't live with wonder as the core motivation and core question hovering over the text that is our lives. Maybe. This is a kind of tragedy of sorts, something that um, kind of fits with what Job himself experiences. If we're going to recover wisdom, which is another core theme in the book of Job, wonder is, I think, the key. If we're going to learn to love well, then, well, wonder is going to be a part of that. Wonder may well be at the root of all virtue, at the root of prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, faith, hope, and charity. Before we get into how we might live according to wonder, um, which I don't think I'm going to cover in, in, in full here, but I'll, I'll obviously hint at a, at a few things, I think it'll help to first distinguish between two kinds of wonder. The first is the wonder of the philosophers. Plato is famous for a number of things, but he's famous for having suggested that philosophy begins with wonder. Wonderful Plato includes curiosity and awe, perhaps something of a sense of the sublime. Aristotle, Plato's <laughs> often rebellious uh, student, he disagreed with his teacher on a number of subjects, but he held to the same idea that philosophy is catalyzed by wonder. When we marvel at things, we want to know more and explore more. That's the Basic idea: wonder, in the sense, is akin to a kind of muse or source of inspiration. But there is another kind of wonder, which the wonder of the philosophers points to, where wonder is a mode of perceiving. The first kind of wonder seems to exist for the sake of something else, for for something other than itself. The second kind of wonder has its own thing going on. I, I see it as a kind of as the root of the first kind of wonder. It is, in a way, pure wonder, something akin to the radical amazement or, or the experience of the sublime, where, where the first kind of wonder opens us up to other things. The second kind of wonder, in a way, opens us up to itself, to the, the primary question that allows for all other questions. It leads us to a kind of deeper grasp, I guess, of, of the mystery of itself. This kind of wonder is not just something that we look for, but is something that we look with. One way to begin to think from the perspective of wonder is by considering the phenomenon of perception itself. There are many things that we don't comprehend after all, but most of the things that we don't comprehend are not even nearly as incomprehensible as the fact that we comprehend at all. we we kind of fail to comprehend comprehension itself, even the barest minimum of perception contains a maximum of mystery. The first mystery is always, as far as I can tell, that we are here at all. Before we get into any kind of other miraculous thing, there is this, this gratuitous and fortuitous miracle of being itself, which gives rise to the miracle of consciousness. This is something that we find in Job's words in chapter twenty-eight, verse twelve. When Job says, and by the way, I'm reading from the King James version here because it's a strange text, and maybe it'll it'll allow us to to kind of grapple with Job in a different way. So Job says, "But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof. Neither is it found in the land of the living. The depth saith it is not in me, and the sea saith it is not." with me beautiful poetry um, and and at the center of this is this question where is the place of understanding and of course the answer is we have no idea <laughs> we understand things of course but what is understanding itself rooted in and how does that even work unfortunately because the miracles of being and perception are so close to us they are they're just the things that we forget we might be grateful for things that we experience but forget that we are here at all to experience things. This is, in a way, part of what is played out for us in the book of Job. What I'm about to share with you is perhaps the most unusual way of reading the book that I've presented thus far, but I think it's a way of reading it that that has tremendous merit for how we, we approach life on the whole. There is a way to read the book of Job that takes the various losses of Job symbolically, not literally. As this would suggest, Joe doesn't necessarily literally lose his servants' possessions, children, and health. Rather, he loses the foundational awareness of their being and his consciousness of their being. In this loss, he suffers. He feels an emptiness in himself. And the point of this non-literal reading is that we end up with the idea that it's possible to lose the world we live in, even if we still live in it in a sense we can become alienated from the very things that are proximate to us i think of a moment of silliness recently that I, that can act as a metaphor for this idea i got into an elevator recently on the ground floor and i don't know where my head was but i absent-mindedly pressed the ground floor button and it was just this moment of shock uh, that i experienced because that very act of pressing the ground floor button made me realize that I was on the ground floor. It's as if I wasn't there before, and now I was. Sometimes we lose the world we're actually living in, and we need to find ways to find it again. Obviously, we are all capable of losing touch with, with the miracle of reality, I guess. We're all prone to taking things for granted, and this leads us into a kind of existential suffering it's the kind of suffering that an existentialist philosopher experiences, sitting smoking cigarettes whilst drinking coffee at a fancy French cafe. It's not that his life is terrible. In fact, it looks pretty lovely. Um, what could be more lovely than sitting around all day smoking and, and like writing and pontificating? But there is, there is a loss of reality in this, in this reality. And in a way, life is kind of robbed of its adventure and its its interest, and as a result, um, the existentialist philosophy barely has any contact with his own existence, which is, I'm sure you will notice, <laughs> highly ironic. It's this sort of thing that Chesterton writes about when he notices that the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. So we, we don't lack, in a way, the, the philosopher's wonder, the, the all the things that we could be exploring. But the thing that we often miss is is the second type of wonder, the the wonder that is a way of perceiving. Put differently, the trouble is not that the world is boring, but we're bored. Uh, In reality, I think there is no such thing as a boring world. There are only bored people. The modern world hasn't exactly helped to cure this bored state very much, In the wake of the Enlightenment, we've all been left with what uh, Charles Taylor refers to as an imminent frame. The spiritual has become not quite illusory, but in some way irrelevant. And the result has been a disenchanted world, a world robbed of its own enchantment. Ironically, this has not given rise to realism. You'd expect it to give rise to realism, but that's really not been the result. What it has given rise to is a kind of pessimism. The imminent frame, divorced from every hope of transcendence, has left most people incapable of seeing the glass. Now they can only see it as a glass half full. Of course, I'm speaking in generalizations, which is always a dangerous thing. I'm well aware that there are exceptions to every rule. Richard Dawkins, for instance, seems to live Quite cheerfully within this eminent frame, something that he he's really celebrates in his work. And he's always trying to, in a way, reenchant the material world, even while he's insisting that that's all there really is. He, is. he has, in fact, done everything in his power to reenchant the godless world. But in recent years, perhaps unconsciously, he has made a name for himself as being one of the biggest pessimists alive. So I'm not convinced that he's really overcome the larger entropic trajectory of the modern era, because he still does what other 19th century philosophers have done. He is, in my mind, a rather philosophically illiterate 19th century philosopher. He tells us that what matters most is the objective facts of the world, not the miracle that we're perceiving it and living it, which is odd, I guess, uh, because our living and perceiving the world is precisely what makes it exist. Without us, in a way, there really is no world, Uh, because what matters, as I've alluded before, is the meaning of things and not just the things themselves. I'm not, by the way, saying this to sound like a solipsist, um, but um, rather I'm saying this to sound like a realist. The world exists for us precisely because we are the ones perceiving it. The objective world is there in a way, always filtered through us. We might try to conceive of the world without us, as many have tried to do. There have been sort of fictional uh, narratives that have tried to explore this idea of a world without people. But even such a world without us would be our imagining. So, in a way, we can't even get away from the us-ness of the world, even if we're not there. and I think that's pretty amazing, in a way. I think this is one of the reasons that Job is, is really such an astonishing book. It turns the focus to what marvels mean for our sense of radical astonishment. So let's look, for instance, at what Elihu says in Job thirty-seven verse fourteen to twenty-two. Uh, again, I'm reading from the King James version, just to shock um, shock you into seeing things a little uh, bit differently. Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Dost thou know when God disposed them and caused the light of his cloud to shine? Dost thou know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him, which is perfect in knowledge, how thy garments are warm when he quieteth the earth by the sound wind? Hast thou with him spread out the sky which is strong and as molten looking glass? Teach us what we shall say to him. For we cannot order our speech by reason of darkness. Shall it be told him that I speak? If a man speak, surely he shall be swallowed up. And now men see not the bright light which is in the clouds, but the wind passeth and cleanseth them. Fair weather cometh out of the north. With God is terrible majesty. I just love that passage. It's just so astonishing. And what I find amazing here is that Elihu's questions of Job are not about the world only and its mysteries and wonder, but about Job's relationship with those mysteries and wonders. And it's this very same line of questioning, very interestingly, um, that the divine voice in chapter 38 uses. When God speaks, he says, Who is it that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it, whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the corner of stone thereof, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea with doors, when I break forth, as if it had issued out of the womb? It's easy to read the passages where Elihu and God speak as if they're trying to belittle Job. It's easy to assume in a way that they're just showing off, that Elihu, for instance, is just showing off how insightful he is despite his age, while God is showing off his power. But I really do not think this is a very healthy or helpful way of reading uh, what they're doing. I think of every moment in my life where I've experienced something amazing and awe-inspiring. You can think of your own experiences, because maybe they'll echo my own. I think, for instance, of sitting recently in a concert hall, listening to an orchestra of 120 people at least, accompanied by a choir of 400, or a totally different, but even more awe-inspiring event. I think of the birth of my daughter, and seeing for the first time this little life in the flesh and its sheer vulnerability, and I just, I had no words. There are moments like these in which awe takes over a wedding, a funeral, the celebration of a major achievement, a sublime vista. Such moments confront us with a double feeling pull it, pulling in opposite directions. The first, probably the least surprising, is a feeling of smallness. This fits in with the line from Job and the Psalmist that I mentioned a while back What is man? that you are mindful of him. The second feeling, tugging against this feeling of smallness, is something I mentioned in the previous episode. It is a feeling of ennoblement. You could almost say that this double experience is of both humility and pride. It's maybe a strange combination, but I think they're both there. In much modern philosophy, there is a tendency to overemphasize one aspect of this feeling and that's usually humility at the expense of ennoblement which amounts amounts to a kind of humiliation even if you read postmodern philosophy a lot of it 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 gives you this sense of like the humility of like the bewilderment of i can't you know not being able to latch onto kind of any solid ground and being kind of thrown into into a space of equivocity and in that space That there's a loss of ennoblement, but I don't think that's what wonder does. In modern philosophy, a lot of it at least, obviously, again, a dangerous generalization, we experience not wonder, but horror. This is what is the result of of losing uh, ennoblement. Oddly enough, this experience of humility or humiliation without ennoblement, Reinforces the ego and our egotism because it backs the ego into a corner. The experience is of such abysmal powerlessness, something I think the films of David Fincher show incredibly potently. um, In this experience of powerlessness, the ego is forced to find a way that it can reassert itself, but it then tends to do this in a very defeated sort of way. Again, this points to the significance of God siding with Job. Job is not just belittled by his encounter with God, but raised up, supported, and in a way even redeemed. Job encounters this colossal mystery and is somehow satisfied. But when the sense of awe that gives rise to wonder, that gives rise to curiosity, is depleted or gone, what do we do? How is wonder recovered? Well, the first and most obvious thing is that the loss of wonder needs to be acknowledged. This is maybe paradoxical, but the first step to to reclaiming wonder is really just that, knowing that wonder has been lost. I've spoken a lot about Job's honesty, and I think this is a key thing to navigating any complex set of emotions and experiences. It's not that honesty equates to truth, but that honesty is our best shot at arriving at truth, and at arriving at a sense of alignment between ourselves and and our experiences and what's going on around us. Honesty is inherently dialogical because it seeks it seeks some kind of connection between perception and reality. And so Job is honest about his losses. Painfully, brutally honest. To be able to recover wonder we need to begin with knowing that something has been lost. Honesty in this context is also about sadness. Whenever I've had an experience of something like awe or the sublime, I've always been fascinated by the hint of sadness that shows up there. Maybe this is just my experience, um, but maybe you will resonate with this too. Although maybe I'm just psychoanalyzing myself out here in the digosphere, but let's see where it goes. To me, the most beautiful pieces of music often have something a little sad about them, and I've often wondered why. This sadness, or just a hint of it, makes sense. The way I see it, sadness communicates a need to let go of something. And I think when we're faced with the awe inspiring, we become aware of the fragility of our egos, the ego that we need to let go of, that we need to let break or die. At the same time, we gain access to something deeper within ourselves, the transcendent soul. We undergo something along the lines of what Jesus says we lose our lives even while we find our lives. This is not easy either. It's something Jesus also describes as taking up our cross, a metaphor for the pain of, of letting the, the ego go. And this is precisely what leads to the second step of recovering wonder. After knowing what has been lost, which is intertwined with a sense of sadness, we need to in fact grieve what has been lost. This is the lesson that we learn from encountering what is truly wonderful, and it's something that we can apply to those moments where where we have lost a sense of wonder. Maybe the question that we should ask ourselves is, "Is there something that I haven't properly grieved?" We don't exactly live in a world that is fond of grieving, uh, especially if you you're you know you've grown up with in a place with Western sensibilities. Grief is not a kind of dominant uh, emotional. Process that people are fond of, but the truth is that every single change, even the change that brings about something good, involves a loss that needs to be grieved. Let's take some of the major changes that any human being can experience as examples. Marriage is one of them. My sense is that one of the reasons, there are many of course, but one of the major reasons why so many mar- marriages suffer is because so many people forgot to grieve the loss of unmarried life. Sure, being unmarried has its downsides, but it's got a lot of upsides too. Here's another example. Becoming a parent, I've already mentioned this, it's just the most astonishing things. It's one of the most miraculous things a person can experience. But if you forget to grieve the life you lose when you become a parent, you will always find more than a hint of resentment in you against your kids, especially when things get tough. Even minor changes need us to just sit and acknowledge that changes have happened, that we've gone through changes. So we need to pause, reflect, maybe write something down, notice what's happening. We don't exactly live in an age that that makes it easy to stop, which is perhaps why we don't like grieving, because grieving takes time. But I think it's really necessary. I've noticed um, as a an additional idea to to this uh, to this thing about grieving, I've noticed that people who find fault in their previous worldview or outlook on life sometimes move on without properly grieving what they have lost. If you were a fundamentalist or or someone with slightly fundamentalist sensibilities and you suddenly move into a kind of philosophical or theological progressivism, it's worth acknowledging and mourning the stability and order and predictability that a more fundamentalist outlook provides. And even if you, you react strongly against your previous ego structure, it's important to notice that the thing you're rejecting is the very thing that's allowed you to get to where you are today. Again, I think, I think all sorts of problems arise just psychologically from, from failing to actually grieve major changes. Job faces pain, obviously, and he really does actually face it. I think this is something that I've learned so much just from reading these encounters. He stops to mourn what he has lost. I think this is something we can all learn from. Grieving is, of course, a complicated topic of its own, and I'm not here to solve it because I probably haven't ever, I haven't properly figured it out for myself, but maybe it's, it's just something that you can think about and, and process and certainly something I can keep on thinking about and processing. I can at least say that it's a vital part of the human story. Sometimes grieving involves sobbing, sometimes it requires a simple acknowledgement, uh, a ritual of sorts maybe. and it's this, it's working through the shock, the trauma, the change that allows us to move on and I think it's the thing that's going to open us up to the p- potential of experiencing wonder again. So the point has been made first, knowing the loss, then grieving the loss. After grief, of course, comes a an ability to actually go out and explore the new territory that you've just landed up in. We don't get to experience wonder simply by moving through the stages of grief. We We have to actually seek the richness of what a new perspective on things could give us, because that's exactly what's happened. We've We've been forced to live in a world that has shifted for us, changed. Uh, a new perspective has arisen within our, our minds. My own tendency is to go out and explore different conceptual frameworks uh, through which I might look at the world. This is one of the things I, I do to look for wonder. This ties in with what I've already said on the idea of, of adopting a polyphonic mind. And I think the book of Job is demonstrating to us the importance of perspective switching. Of looking at the world through different eyes, it's easy to do this, or at least pretty easy when you're, when you're hanging out with little kids. My daughter almost struggles to catch her breath when she's excited about something. She gasps, she goes <gasps> and then she just t- like tenses up and just becomes this bundle of energy with pure astonishment at every thought of a surprise. Uh, anything new is a surprise for her, a chance for her to recover. Uh, something radically astonishing, and as a parent, I get to witness this often, and in a way, this becomes kind of contagious. I, I get to encounter her joy, and through her joy, I encounter my own. When I saw my brother-in-law this morning, he asked me, what's new? And I was with my daughter, and I I just, I mean, I know that there's a lot in life that's kind of fairly the same, fairly banal, but I, I looked down at my daughter, and then looked back at my brother-in-law and said, every day. Every day is what's new, because that's what it feels like when you've shifted your perspective away from yourself. Uh, The the danger of perspective switching is something I'm well aware of, though. Uh, The danger is that adopting a polyphonic mind of, of seeing through multiple eyes and perspectives could actually equate to a kind of perpetual avoidance of the present realities and in favor of some kind of pure possibility. It might substitute mere interest for wonder and newness for genuine contemplation. So I'd stress that in a way the point is to dwell deeply on things in a way that seeks the form of them, not just the content. Recovering wonder is not just about seeing things, but is about seeing through them, Uh, This is something suggested by the fact that the divine voice in Job speaks with questions without answers. To, To see a tree or an ostrich or a snowstorm as an answer is to fail to see it in a way because everything is at root a question. Everything seems, to me at least, to announce its own bewildering contingency at the mere fact of its own Existence, every word I'm saying here seems to me to be a bit surprising. How does anything come to mean anything? How is it that we get to catch this mysterious cosmos in a web of definitions? Well, the answer is we don't. Uh, we never catch anything it's It's just intensely mysterious. I am of course a an unabashed Platonist on this matter, and possibly this has something to do with my own cognitive biases. Plato's suggestion, more or less, uh, was that we see the transcendentals behind and beyond the appearance. We see beautiful things, for instance, but Plato encourages us to see the beauty that all beautiful things participate in. He encourages us to look for the form, in a way, the, the deeper transcendent pattern behind all of reality. That's what the questions in Job signify for me. This is part of the value of, of contemplating the things that we cannot explain or comprehend. We comprehend things, but not the means by which we comprehend things, as I've already said. We see beautiful things, but we can't even begin to properly understand the ideal form of beauty behind beautiful things. And yet, it is in contemplating this mystery, the, the mystery of goodness, beauty, truth, the one, and so on, that we we can get a deeper sense of the the sheer gratuity and contingency of everything, including ourselves. It's in this seeking, this active pursuit of the question behind all questions through contemplation that we open ourselves up to the possibility of a kind of rebirth, an opening up to wonder and pure amazement, which amounts to an embracing of a new world order. The process we walk through is what in literary theory is known as defamiliarization. The familiar is made strange. You can do this uh, through any act of imagination because imagination takes the familiar and makes it new again. That's its prime function. And maybe this will happen to you with difficulty, um, or maybe it'll come easily to you. But whatever happens, or however you experience the process, it is going to be a process and it's going to require some effort from you. At the end of the book of Job, Job has gone through just such a process. He has lost everything. His whole world has been taken from him in a way. And then he has this experience of astonishment. And he's he's kind of pulled out of the picture for a moment as we just listen to God talking. And it's not that the pain he has gone through is healed in an instant. I don't think that that's the, the main motto of this, of this um, event of the divine, but I do think it's an indication that healing has begun. I think this, this encounter with wonder, with astonishment, is what paves the way for healing. Interestingly enough, I think the book of Job also sets up a theme that will be taken up more fully in the New Testament alongside the previously mentioned theme of the good man who suffers. And this is the theme of new creation. In the book of Job, God begins to describe the created order as if he is, in a way, remaking it. He is making all things new. And this is really profound because there's an idea in the biblical canon that a lot of biblical writers come back to again and again and again. And it's this idea. That wisdom is always with God at the start of things. And it's the idea that wisdom begins with wonder. Wonder begins in awe, even if that awe is experienced as a kind of fear or terror. And it is awe as we experience it, wonder as we experience it. But we have to seek it out. We have to seek wonder first. It will come to us only when we've been looking for it but also this activity of looking for wonder has to involve a kind of passivity, a a receptivity to wonder. And this is at least something of the meaning of the story of that one man named Job. New creation always begins with us, with each of us. This is how the whole world will be remade, when each of us is taken out of the mess or within the mess of our various situations and given genuine time and genuine dignity. At least this, I believe, is one thing that the book of Job shows us. And that, folks, is the end of this unorthodoxy series on the book of Job. So thank you very much, as always, for listening. I'll be back soon with something else, Um, so I hope you join me for that. And to finish off this episode and this series, I want to play you a song by the astonishingly wonderful band, Broly. This is a live recording of the song, Things That Keep Me Up At Night, which, as I have it, is the title of Broly's forthcoming album, which you should totally be on the lookout for. Um, I think it, uh, this song absolutely profoundly captures many of the tensions that go uh, along with living through tough things. Um, through. Job-like experiences. There's a kind of realism here and uh, a, ho- a hopefulness, too, and and I think that the song is really just beautiful. My thanks go out to Jake Itherburn, whose voice you're about to hear, uh, for letting me share the song with everyone. I really appreciate it, Jake, um, and I hope they go and buy your music, or watch you perform if they can. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>